So, Jimmy, you did not get washed away in no. the recent rain flooding situation? No, no. Uh, Vermont is hit pretty hard, and that's obviously about a two-hour drive away from here, three-hour drive. And then south, which is only just probably about less than an hour drive away, got hit pretty hard, too, south of... So, it's funny in New York when people say the Hudson Valley. If you're in New York City and you're like a news reporter and you say the Hudson Valley, they talk about just above the Bronx, which is like 30 miles north of Manhattan. But if you live upstate, the Hudson Valley is from Albany down, and that's about a hundred and so miles north of where they always keep saying the Hudson Valley. So they talk about the very edge of the south part of the Hudson Valley is where the flooding was, which was like White Plains, even just a little bit further north of that. So I didn't feel any effect, and uh, uh, my house is high up on a hill, so during Irene, it was 10 years ago, they said New York City was going to get major flooding. So me and a few people piled in the car and we came up here for the weekend to get out of the city because the city was going to float away. And turns out the storm flew right past New York and just stopped over the Catskills and it rained for 12 hours straight, which caused damage to every single bridge, even if it was a tiny bridge with a one-lane road that went over it or a six-lane road. Every bridge was undermined and for years they were fixing bridges around here every detour there was many detours but even during that event my house was still high enough to not even know when we woke up that morning we didn't even know that there was any until we went for a drive and we started realizing all these road closures and just like little country roads were closed for months because every bridge got washed under and uh, that did not happen this week it happened down in the beginning of the hudson valley you know, it's funny. Geography is, is interesting, and I guess this is the case with everybody. But it's interesting to me that we have this localized picture of wherever we live or spend time about where things are. You know, like I, I'm in Kentucky, so I could tell you, zooming out from that point where I am, I can describe how Kentucky relates geographically to Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Tennessee, West Virginia, and then even on the west side of me, it starts to get a little fuzzy. Like, I don't know, I've never really been there, and so I don't have to look at a map to see exactly, to, to describe it to you. And so when I think of your area, Jimmy, because I've only ever been to Boston and New York City and, and Rochester. I've been in a few places flying. But when I think of the Northeast, I think of, like, it could be Europe. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it's just like, yeah. I, you know, actually, I could probably describe Europe to you better than I could the Northeast. Well, we have uh, Maine, Vermont. Well, I know what's New there. Hampshire, it's, not, New York. it's not a matter of that. But like, Massachusetts. if you tell me, if you were like, all right, which one is further north, Connecticut or Rhode Island? I would be like, nah, I don't know. I think they're in the exact oh, this same sounds like a great little segment for our live tour. Yeah. Geography. <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, don't you have anything like that? Like, Jimmy, if I were to ask you to describe to me something about, I don't know, the Southwest or even Southwest. the Southeast, the Deep okay. South. Ask me Could a you do that? Like, Maybe. Exactly. Ask me a question. Come on. Hit me. Oh, my gosh. Trivia. I, um, What's further south? Mobile or Tallahassee? I'd say they're in the same line. Next. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even it? even more. I'm going to tell you even, right now. Even Mobile past cities, like, can because I don't know the answer to that question either. But you know, like does does Louisiana does Louisiana go higher than Texas? 
No. I'm checking right now. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Because over that you have Arkansas. I just have a map open. Yeah, you're looking at a map. That's not fair. Well, not I fair. answered the question before I checked, so I was right. Anyway. I checked. I looked before I, ch- I checked. <laughs> I questioned before. Never mind. Like David, is, is Wyoming higher mm-hmm. than Nevada? Yes. No, not you. You're looking at, <laughs> You're looking at a map. Uh, My point may, is, like, we yeah. have we have an, a context for you know, like, where we spend time and stuff, and right. then these other places that we don't ever go are are hard to. If you've not studied them, I guess. But anyway, my whole point is, as you're describing your area that you are familiar with, to me, yeah. it could be an entirely different part of the world because I've just so, never really had to yeah. learn it, you know. So, right. Well, it's funny because Kentucky, I, I know from my travel experiences, Eastern Kentucky is like a different state than Western Kentucky. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> it's like it, there might as well be a borderline down. The middle of it because just right through the, the mountains they should just put a line yeah. <laughs> yeah. and that's not me saying a, in a bad thing but it is you're right it's very different yeah it's like a totally different state and uh, it's just interesting how i've always found it weird geography that creates that as you go west you can't really just drive to the next major city like where we are within four hours we're we're detroit indianapolis pittsburgh cleveland cincinnati like all those major cities are within driving distance. But as you go west, you have to drive like four days to get to the next major town, and that just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's because it seems like urban sprawl happened really quickly. Everybody was rushing to get to, well, I guess it was the gold rush that opened up the the west coast, really. And then people kind of stopped the line. Like all those various cities are like everyone's stamina. Like they got as far as they could, and they were just like, I gotta take it's a break. Hot out of here. Yeah, let's start a city, <laughs> and then they then that pack broke apart and went as far as they could and said, "Let's start another city right here." I have to use the bathroom. Everything that we've mentioned so far is facts. These are actual facts, people. That's right. This yeah, is a history here. podcast. Or my my podcast. friend uh, Matt Whitman, who does uh, a couple podcasts. Anyway, <clears throat> he used to live. He lives out west. Now he lives in the south, uh, in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Um, but he used to live in Wyoming and so everywhere, like you're saying, David, even like to get to the grocery store was like a 45 minute drive to get there and then 45. So to him being in the car for two or three hours just to go get a thing is not a big deal to me. That's like, I, okay, I'm committing my day to go get something that's three hours away or whatever. And so he would always call me when he was on the road, his windshield time, as he would call it. And so he would have this big block of time that's right in the middle of my workday just because he's going to the grocery store and it's going to take him two hours or whatever. But it's funny that the the scale of travel and the scale of time and all that stuff is pretty dependent on, you know, like what your normal delays are to get to the grocery store. Or if you're in the city, in New York City, and you want to get to work, you know, you have several hours or an hour of traffic or subway time or, you know. All that type of stuff. And then when we talk to our friends in Europe, they're like, yeah, I'm going to another country today. It's going to take me half of an hour to get there. Right. <laughs> like, Whoa. Just, just very different. Anyway. It's scary when you travel and then you see those signs that say, if you don't get gas now, you might become a skeleton. You know, those signs that are pretty, <laughs> they're pretty scary. I don't think I've ever seen that exact sign. but I just made that one up. But yeah, that's the I fear. Like it's like, if you don't get gas now, God help you. You know, those are the signs because you have exactly 280 miles to get to the next gas station. 
This is scary. Maybe this is one of my picks. Uh, I, I just thought about this. Uh, I, I just the other day I watched a Vice video, and they uh, two guys, two skateboarder guys, they just travel Route 66, which used to be a major highway from going east to west or getting to the the west coast. And when major highways started to come in. Route 66 was used less and less. And so now it's just covered with all these abandoned buildings and ghost towns. And it was just such a little interesting documentary. Yes, Route 66. It's funny. I wasn't until I was an adult that I realized what a route is versus a highway versus a road. Because there's a couple of routes up here. And that's when I had the realization that a route isn't necessarily one road. It is an avenue of roads that takes you to, for instance, Route 66 goes from Chicago to California. And if the old Route 66 was before there was a, a highway network, before you can just go south down 64 or 35 to hit 40, 80 or 90 and 70 to go to the west. So a route is you take this main street to that side road, to that other main street, to that thoroughfare. So it's it was always confusing to me when people would say, oh, I'm going on Route 66. Because I'm like, where exactly is it? I always expected to see more of a straight line when I would see it mm. on the map. Yeah. So now you guys probably don't know this. Um, have have either of you ever seen the movie Cars, the animated movie? I don't think so. I think I saw it on an airplane once while I was sleeping. So it's a Pixar movie, and it's about Mm -hmm. these cars that are like the tractors. The the tractors are the best. But the premise of the movie is actually that there's this little town on Route 66. I mean, this is the general premise. There's a, a little town that's on Route 66 that is getting bypassed by interstates, and they're going to make this place obsolete. And so it's about this these car people banding together to try to make their place worth visiting, you know, to leave the highway, to do the mass transit thing, and, like, go to the those interesting little special places. They needed a Walmart, I think you said, right? Yeah, Walmart, <laughs> yeah. or a Bucky's. Bucky's is a Bucky's is Never been. I only know the, the lore yeah, uh, you're not American until you visit a Bucky's. <laughs> it's pretty substantial. It's pretty wild. Anyway, what are you guys that, been up to? That was non-geographical. Yeah. Well, I, I started working on the, the graveyard house. I put up an Instagram post just to kind of get people's uh, interest level to see if anybody would be interested in seeing more of that. And obviously, it, was, it went really well. A lot of people really dug it. I got a lot of messages about uh, seeing the first major fix them ups it's not done yet maybe saturday i'll be able to get to the final part of that phase and <clears throat> it would just be i replaced the sill plate i'm going to replace the sill plate in the back corner of the house the house is it's if you get an old house up here in the upstate new york or the northeast it was built by a guy and his brother 200 years ago it wasn't built by a construction firm and there was no standards at the time somebody's like hey let's try this construction technique and that's what a lot of people think my house was just like some guy like us just said let's try this this might work better as a technique because there's no real standard there's no it's not technically a post and beam house it's a wooden ring made out of eight by eights that's like 30 by 30 they nailed a bunch of two by twos to it that go up eight feet and then they nailed another wooden ring inside that and then they went up higher and then they nailed another wooden ring and then they put a point on it so it is like basically a box made out of wood with rings and that second ring holds all the joists for the floor 
So the whole entire second floor, aside from a couple of bearing walls, which is really, when I think about it, in this one part of the house, there's one bearing wall, is hanging on nails. So there's nails holding this rim joist that carries the second floor of joist. Wow. I'm not going to complain. It's been there for 100 years, 200 years, so I'm going to keep going forward with it. But when I add downstairs walls, I will add some walls underneath that rim joist to keep it a little bit more supported. It doesn't seem to show any signs of, of drooping along the, the shear of the second floor on the wall boards, but obviously drooping as far as the foundation given up and the whole house kind of just sagging towards the earth. So that's what I was repairing, but there's a lot of rotted wood, so I cut all that rotted wood out. And uh, so I'm going to get back to that. So that's pretty good. How a lot are you going to support the second story hot tub? Like, or how's that going to yeah. be handled? Uh, the whole second floor is going to be a waterbed. That's what I need. <laughs> no, there probably will be a hot tub in the backyard. It's a good point. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's been interesting. And, and everyone's just, everyone's like, how do you know how to do that? How do you know how to do that? And I was like, just keep things from falling i mean honestly my, my business don't. partner howard wrote to me and he said uh, he said please don't collapse the house on top of yourself <laughs> he says i like having you as a partner as he was watching the stories it was funny i said no, no don't worry i think we, we got reassurances the house is not going to fall down he wasn't worried about the house he was worried about me <laughs> but no it's it's very challenging and and i'm up for the challenge i really uh, enjoy solving these type of problems and putting them back together so and it's cool. A lot of people wanted to help, but I, I honestly, when it comes to something like this, I prefer to work alone. It's just, it's just easier for me to just sit and gather my thoughts and work alone. And remember, I always say, you know, don't mess with my G code. That's a perfect opportunity where I'm like constantly thinking of twenty different things. Like, where's this bottle, Jack? Also, in silence is really important because I'm listening for cracks and settling, mm. and you know, so I'm not listening to anything on my headset. I'm not listening to anything except for the house. The house makes a big pop sound. In fact, I was all done for the day. Everything is all jacked up. I put all my tools away, and I was playing with the birds, if you happen to see that in the story on that particular day. And I had just turned the camera. Just as I was ending a story, I heard a pop. I was like, that that sounded pretty significant. And I played the story back. I couldn't hear the pop. I kind of heard it exactly as I stopped the story. And I looked all around. I couldn't figure out what that sound was but something popped, like a piece of wood snapped or something. But that's because the house now is under a tremendous amount of stress because it's being put back to where it was. I lifted the back corner of the house up about at least six inches. And it was six inches out of square on one side. So it was like across 30 feet. Looking at the repair on the right side was lower six inches than it was on the other side. So now it's raised back up. So that means every other part connected to that is also breathing and moving up in the air. Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely dangerous. You do it slowly and surely and constantly. Like I said, listening for when I I pulled the the floor over into the pockets. So I pulled the the sill plate was moving down and out. So it was kind of kicking out. So it would over time the back wall would have just kind of blown out toward the yard. By connecting a chain to it and putting the ratchet clicker on it, I pulled it, pulled it, and then I kept doing one click and then waiting. 20 minutes and then pulling another click because the click is extremely tense tension a lot of tension and just doing it slowly instead of just just do it slow i mean that's really important because you got to see how different stresses begin to react to other stresses so hmm. 
Anyway, I'll talk, there is going to be a lot of people asking if there'll be a long-form video of that. There will be, and by the time that video will wrap up with me repairing that corner completely, or at least putting it all in, I might not have the foundation ready because there's still a lot of foundation work, so the house will still be sitting on the screw jacks by the time that video comes to a conclusion, I think. The foundation is going to take a long time because we've got to do some more deep digging, but at least to get the repair done on the woodwork. So what's the plan on the foundation, th- those repairs? Is it like pouring a new something under it or, or yeah it's digging it's going to dig it we're going to dig it out fairly deep in certain sections at a time and then probably put cinder block in there because i could always go back in and put like phony veneer stack rock but mm. to dig it out it's only about a 12 foot section under the entire circumference of the house there's one about 10 or 12 foot section which is right under where i'm working which is why all that damage is there the, the wood is damaged the, the foundation's damaged because the wood the water just collects right there and just sits there. So all winter long, any rain and melt just sits there and then freezes again and mushes everything around and then gets soft and then freezes again and mush. Every time something freezes, it like expands. And so if you put foundation walls and such, the ice will expand. And then when the ice melts, the expansion stays where it was left. And that's why over time, foundation walls slowly push in if it's near the frost line. And that's why decks heave and poles stick out of the ground because every time the, the frost pushes it up a little bit it doesn't go back to normal the earth goes back to normal but wherever you're pushing that object it stays where you pushed it and so that's why drainage is so important i'm beginning to learn all that in my backyard the guys that are doing all the stone stack walls dig these huge underground drains and I'm, i was like at first i was like what are all this extra expense but now it makes perfect sense because when you dig this big underground drain huge gravel pit maybe huge it's like like three feet two feet deep and then on top of that you do the stone wall every time it rains the water is no longer sitting directly underneath the stone wall in preparation to heave and push up and heave and push up so <clears throat> where i used to get big puddles in the backyard i get no puddles anymore because they're going down to a drainage tube which is dug 30 feet to the side of the property or 40 or 100 feet to the side of the property. So all around my driveway now, there used to be these puddles and they're all gone now. Just they go in the ground and they go out these puddles, they go out these tubes all the way to the side. None of it was cheap, but I don't, I'm not standing on, and then all the investment and all these stone walls are all done properly. So that is exactly what needs to happen in the back of the house. You need to dig these big gravel pits and send the, the water somewhere else. And then on top of that, you could put earth and dirt and stuff so it looks normal. But when you not realize, and then sometimes they'll put like a soot, like a blanket, so the blanket will carry just water will go through it, but the dirt won't. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, we'll leave it up to the experts, but. Hmm, that's wild. Yeah, a lot of work. But, you know, it's just, it's advancement in construction technology because when they they built the house, like, oh, let's just dig a hole, make a basement, and put a house on top of it they didn't think about drainage or anything or even heating the craziest thing about this house is that you have a two by 14 in some cases so it's all old sawmill wood so like the wood can be it's a plank maybe 14 or 12 inches wide two inches thick right on the inside of that is lath and then right on that is the plaster wall so your wall and then on the outside you have clapboard so your wall is solid but it's about three inches thick and it's solid wood. So, I mean, I'm assuming that's better than a hollow wall, which is but my there's house. there's no place for insulation at all. None. Like, you can't even add it. There. No. 
it's just solid. But obviously now, I mean, I could certainly build a two by four wall in front of it to create mm. room for electrical wiring and room for insulation, which is what I'm going to do. And by the way, all that's ripped out. So all I have now is just these flat, rough cut, flat walls with the uh, lath stains on them. In the video that I post on Instagram, you see me pulling some lath down. That's just one spot where the, the house happens to have a false wall in front of it from a previous renovation. So that's why it was, it's like one set of two by fours thicker. Only in that one section, which I'm ripping out anyway. To start so over. I guess if, if you're adding, if in some cases, if you do add another you know, two by four framed wall in front of an existing wall, that could also become a stacking point for the level above, right? You oh, absolutely. That, like yeah. Rim. yeah, yeah, it would become basically a supporting structure for everything above it. Absolutely, yeah. that's great. Hmm. Yeah, so that's what I'm up against. But I knew I knew what I was getting into. It's funny because when uh, when Howard's like, "Do you want to get the house inspected?" Because we we just we didn't take a mortgage; we just paid for it. I was like. He's going to tell me everything I already know. <laughs> you walk it into like a wooden box with like a few pipes sticking out of the walls. So, yeah, it helps that everything's exposed. I guess. I mean, it's yeah. more work, but at least you can see it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's crazy. So, I mean, the foundation is always a situation for any old house. So, once I sort that out, then I can get into the meat and potatoes of the styling of everything. Cool, David. What have you been tearing out and? <laughs> foundationing and stuff i pay other people to do that i'll just make the situation (laughs) worse (laughs) we were working on our our video wall this week and when we started the project my brother on monday is like this seems too simple for one of your videos and i was like yeah but it's going to be a fun one and then we ran into all kinds of complications throughout the whole it was it was the opposite of simple um but it's 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 hung it's not completely done i'm hanging a curtain around it to make it look like a window so basically we took three cheap tvs flipped them vertical and then put them framed them so they're all one unit and then that unit hangs up on a wall and uh the video box that I got, it's called a video wall controller. It says, you know, you can, when you flip a TV, you, of course, you've got to rotate the image. And it says it rotates 180 degrees. I wasn't thinking. I actually needed it to rotate 90 degrees. So the cheap video box that we got didn't work. So then quickly went to Best Buy to get a video, an HDMI video adapter so you could use a computer and to split it out and of course the software for the adapter doesn't allow you to rotate on a mac so we had to get our pc out it works on a pc and then we got it going and i don't always want a computer hooked up to it i want to do an apple tv so there's a another video i bought a used video wall controller from ebay that's um it's like five hundred dollars new, and I've, I didn't want to. I didn't want this to be a huge budget project, so I got to use one, and that's going to be here tomorrow. So it was a, a little bit more complicated. It's, and then one of the issues that we can't figure out in Windows, I think it's Windows Ten. We've got three TVs. I want them to act as one, so when you go f- full screen, it just 
doesn't go over one TV, it goes over three. And the video card software doesn't allow that, so I'm trying to find other software. That, that bit, always seemed complicated to me. I always wondered how when somebody opens up, you open up somebody's Instagram page and they have a picture across seven things. Yeah, a, a lot of times, um, we've, we've done so much research, It's it's I'm tired of Googling and, and reading. A lot of times, it's all about the video graphics driver. It should be built right into there. And this one's an Intel, and all the... All the Google pages, every page on the internet says you just go here and then you just say, um, it's not combined, a collage, and then there you go. And I'm like, it's not here. And it's, and then other people are having the same problem. It's, it's because I'm using TVs and not regular monitors and an HDMI adapter makes it a little bit more complicated. But once the used eBay wall controller comes, it'll, It'll all be normal. I can just hook up my Apple TV to it. and But we're hanging a curtain around it. We're trying to make it look like a, a big, massive window. We're still, today, I'm hanging a curtain around it. And um, it's... It looks it looks pretty good. We we uh, we put some. It bothers my brother because it reminds him of uh, the house that we grew up in. But I put up this cherry uh, paneling on the wall to make it look like a <laughs> like an old den. And he's like, oh, this just gives me old house vibes. I'm like, this is exactly what I want. I want old house vibes. So the that part of the shop looks all new and and old at the same time. It's it's a uh, it, it's been a fun project. It's almost I would have been it would have been easier to just buy one big massive 90 inch TV. And while Jimmy was talking, I'm like, what does a 90 inch TV cost? And most of them are a thousand uh, and above, but I did see one for $800. And I was like, man, that's just a couple hundred dollars more than what I spent on this entire project. And it would have made it so much more simple, but it's been a, it's been a fun learning process. But then the video would have been you buying a TV. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, it's funny. I I probably should have sent it to you, but the other day, all the Prime Day deals are yeah. showing up, and one of them that popped up for me, and I have no idea why, was a TV wall like splitter box mm-hmm. thing, and it was you know fifty percent off for Prime Day or whatever. And I was like, oh, I should send this to David. Oh, he's probably already got this sorted yeah, out. Yeah, probably now. already has it figured <laughs> out. Yeah, I I bought all the stuff a while ago, and the at the beginning of the video, we talked about using simple tools and trying to keep it low budget so that w- that's been the plan the whole time so we're just using a track saw and a drill for everything and then i was like this oh this this tv wall processor is only 100 bucks or 120 bucks or whatever this is and the tvs were 200 dollars a piece this is going to be somewhat inexpensive for how big it's going to be and then it turned into it's not as simple as as you want it to be but it's going to look pretty darn impressive. Yeah, that's that's most things. Yeah, Never yeah. as easy as you think. I saw a little picture this morning on Instagram that was a sign. Somebody's like, it looked like a fabrication shop. And it said, we do this not because it's easy, but because we thought it would be easy. Yeah, I've seen <laughs> yeah, that. And I, I relate to that so much. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's see. For me, um, the video that's coming out this week is... Did I tell you about the old lantern? Did I explain that already? I don't think so. So, 
when we moved into this house, we bought my grandfather's house after he passed, and most of the things in the house were sold off and you know given out to family and all that type of stuff. But there were still a few things down in the shop that were just leftovers. One of the things was a uh, a Coleman kerosene lantern, and this was I looked it up, I found the model number, and it was probably from 1950, and it was in really good shape. Still had kerosene in it, <laughs> um, but it had Claggett painted in like an enamel paint on the chrome kerosene tank, so it just looks cool. You know, I don't I don't remember this thing from when I was a kid or anything like that, but it's just a cool old lantern. And so I hung on to it, thinking one of these days I'll do something with this lantern. Well, finally got around to deciding that I was going to take all the kerosene stuff out of it. Well, actually, what ended up happening a couple of years ago, it got knocked over, and so the glass around the the kerosene burner part broke and I never looked to see if I could find another one because I probably couldn't and so I decided to turn this thing into like an LED lantern and get rid of all the kerosene stuff and while I was doing that I was like oh I should just take advantage of the fact that it's battery powered and so basically I took this really dirty old thing took it apart completely cleaned it all up shined it because it was very chromey, but it was not chromey at the time. And then the bottom section, the tank where the kerosene went, um, I ripped, I cut that open from underneath and then added a battery pack, an Arduino to drive some LEDs, and a Bluetooth speaker and amplifier. So there's speakers and lights mounted where the kerosene burners used to be. All the other stuff is down where the kerosene tank was and so from the outside it looks like original it looks exactly like it did before i didn't really add anything i had to add one port a charging port to the back of it but that's it and so um the coolest thing about it to me and i don't know if anybody else is going to think this is like even a remotely interesting project or any of that stuff but the, th the thing that i really liked about doing this was that i wanted to keep it original but i needed a couple of controls i needed a a control for the volume for the speaker thing and it was one of those where like if you turn it all the way down and it clicks and then it turns off so it's really just one knob and then I also had a uh, it's called a rotary encoder for the LED controls and an, a rotary encoder is a, it's a potentiometer it's a knob but also has a button in it so if you push it in it clicks and I'd never used one before, but it was actually a really cool single interaction point for an Arduino project because you can like, you know, you can turn it either direction and have that do something. You can also use a button press to do something and then you can do a long button press. If you press and hold it, it'll do something different. So I was able to take those two knobs and attach them to the backside of the cap one of them went to the cap of the kerosene container. So where you would normally unscrew the little cap to pour in kerosene. Now you can't completely unscrew it, but you can turn it left and right and it's the volume knob, which I think is really cool. And then on kerosene lanterns, there's a little plunger and you have to like pressurize the tank, I guess. I don't know, I've never really used one, but it seemed like there was a plunger that you would have to pressurize the tank and then it, that's how you would burn it off. So I used that little knob, attached it to the rotary encoder so you can press on it as a button and then you can twist it. And so I have these two like 
old school interfaces that go to new school interface on the inside and um and then i made like a new diffusion layer where the glass used to be with vellum just a couple layers of vellum in there and so it diffuses the leds and super bright i got different colors and uh, i tried to do like a flickery flame mode to where the leds would flicker i like those but it didn't look I need to work on it more, but I don't really have time to work on the animation for the video, so I'm probably just going to skip that one. But you should you should show the, uh, the it would be funny. I'm picturing the lamp falling over and Mrs. McGillicuddy's barn, whatever the barn is that set Chicago on fire. Oh, mm. <laughs> and then just like the thing falling over, and then it light like continuously lighting because it's a battery operated thing, and then somebody just walking in and standing it back up, and then that that's the end just of the clip. falling over on time. No, no, it's so, like the, the cow knocks it over, and then somebody just walks up and stands it back up, and that's it. It's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so we did an interesting it. intro for this. Um, we were trying to come up with like a, a, a fun way to, I don't know, to set up the video or whatever. And so a couple weeks ago, I don't want to give the whole thing away. I just wanted people to go watch it, because I think it turned out really cool. But I... We we hid the lantern and hid it. We put it in my attic, up in like a high place, and then we shot this whole Indiana Jones like cinematic thing of me climbing around and sneaking through the smoke filled attic to find this thing. And for this, I had to go buy a life size plastic skeleton from Amazon <laughs> to pull it out of its hands. Yeah. So anyway, just go watch the intro because I think it's really funny and. No, good setup for it but so that's what i did and then that was for this week so i did all that um before i went to florida and then finished it up last week but uh right now i am tearing out our back porch we have a screen in back porch and it has not really changed since like 1983 when the house was built except i've had to replace the screens a bunch of times because my cats are out there and they just destroy screens so, but the way it was built, replacing screens is a huge pain. And like, I just have to take trim off and then put trim back on and all this, whatever. So I'm ripping it all out, redoing the entire back porch and making it look better and be comfortable and clean and, you know, all that stuff. So we're doing kind of a summer renovation video for the next couple of weeks. I don't know when exactly that's coming out, but that's what but we've been up to. Mrs. O'Leary's farm, by the way. Ah, I'm not Start familiar. The Chicago Fire. Did you did you guys not know that? I mean, I, I mean, because I, I mean, I've heard of the Chicago Fire, but I never knew. Yeah, how it started or anything. <clears throat> it started at the O'Leary's farm, 1871, and they think the cow knocked over a lamp. That's the only summation they can come up with. Oil lamp. Wow. Thanks, cow. I do know that. Um, you know, when you go to Chicago and you look around, there is basically nothing made out of wood because of that fire. When they, yeah. I think we were all there together and we were, I don't remember the situation, but anyway, they built everything out of stone after that. I, I heard this and I have the Wikipedia page open. I'm not going to take the time to read it here, but we're going to take the internet away from Jimmy. <laughs> and, but I heard that there was wooden walkways. And the wooden walkways helped spread the fire because they were conduits to spread the fire across wherever because they would catch wow. on fire just like like this trail of gasoline. Crazy. 
<laughs> they used to draw paths across town with gasoline. <laughs> yeah. Here, just follow this path. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, well, we did kind of have a topic. Jimmy, what was our topic? Uh, Rob suggested, Rob, my assistant Rob Rojas suggested that we kind of talk about our origins and some of our early tools because me and Rob are always buying and selling tools. And he said, uh, I'd be curious to find out kind of where we started. And and I was kind of thinking about, uh, I'm going to mute and cough. I was thinking about my table saw, the one that I injured my hand on in 2010. And I got that saw from a penny saver ad. It was a unisaw. I had been using contracting table saws, those like metally crappy ones that seemed extremely dangerous. Those ones that plug in, like you can pick them up with one hand and you got to moor them to the ground somehow because the wood will just push right through them. Are you supposed to put them on saw horses? So I was using one of those for a little while and they were re- it was really annoying. So I was like, you know what? Let me open up the penny saver at the time. This is like the early 90s. Let me find a table saw. And I found a guy who was selling his whole contents. He had sold his house. So he was selling the contents of his home workshop, which included a Delta Unisaw, which is what I was after because I had seen real cabinet shops that had the Delta Unisaw. And for me, that was like the next big thing that I needed in my life. I went to this guy's house and I don't even remember how much I paid, several hundred dollars. It wasn't more than a thousand, but I got a bandsaw, which is the bandsaw that I use that's all covered with stickers that you guys are prominently on there. So the sticker bandsaw, um, wait a minute, I lied. Hold on, I'm gonna cough again. I lied, the sticker bandsaw I got somewhere else. So never mind that. I got the bandsaw that I use often. I know exactly which one it is. It's not the sticker bandsaw. I got that the day I got Spike. Different story. Hmm. So I got I got a Delta bandsaw, the Unisaw, and a bunch of hand tools, which I still use, all clamps and stuff. So I got that was like 91, 92. And I remember my, I had to borrow my dad's van to go get it. And at the time, we had a shop in the city. So I brought it to the city, uh, 92. I brought it. It was in my storefront shop and then we brought it over to when I got a bigger shop we brought it around the corner to the commercial shop so I had that for just about 19 years when I got injured on it and uh, so that was a real big deal but the bandsaw that I use all the time was the one that I my when my dad was a New York City fireman he bought the contents of a wood shop when I was about seven or eight years old so that that bandsaw that I talk about often is the one that I had since I was a little kid and by the way, that band, the table saw that I talked about, the Delta Unisaw that I was so excited to get and use, I gave it to Tim Sway because then I got a saw stop. And then Tim Sway just gave it to Robert Kelly of Maker by Proxy. He offered it up to his uh, fan base, I think on Instagram. He asked me, he's like, do you want the saw back? Because I just upgraded. I was like, well, let's give it to a fan. So Robert Kelly has it now. Tim did not get hurt on it. And hopefully let's not let Robert get hurt on it. But there is a, I think Dave Welder drew a picture of my hand with like a bone sticking out of the pinky. <laughs> His hand drawn on there wow. from when it was in my basement. So, yeah, so that, that saw lives on. It still works. It always worked well. Um, and as far as drill presses go, I have a, the, another drill press my dad had when I was a little kid. I still have that, but I have several drill presses. But... Rob knows this because we just changed the motor on it. This one drill press that I had since I was a kid. It was might have big. Might I might have had it since as long as I've had the bandsaw, and I still have that one. We just changed the motor on it because the motor burnt out. 
But I grew up in a workshop, and one of the first tools I ever always learned how to use was a radial arm saw, which is super dangerous, a nine-inch radial arm saw, which is still in the basement of my mother's house. My dad said he bought that with a loan. He, he went to the bank and borrowed $300 and paid it back, $10 a month, until it was paid off in 1970. Wow. And he bought it used. He said he paid 300 bucks for it. And it's still in my mother's house in the basement. I always think about going and recovering it for a video. Hmm. Be a funny story. Hmm. But that was a, I, so I grew up using a radial arm saw until I got the unisaw, you know, proper table saw. But, and then I remember as a kid, chop saws became a thing. They call them chop saws, but they sort of replaced the radial arm saw when you just lever the blade down because it wasn't as dangerous, even though then, then they became the sliding compound saws, which was a little bit like a radial arm saw. But I remember when those became popular and uh, my dad got one of those and we stopped using the radial arm saw as much to make cross cuts. I would use it to rip. So I would turn the saw sideways and Ooh. set up a radial arm saw to rip sketchy yeah it's sketchy and you usually don't get a very accurate cut unless you're using a big saw so i don't know that's that's kind of my humble beginnings as far my as my power tools go had a radial arm saw my dad has one still um but he was my grandfather was ripping a long board and i don't i wasn't there so i don't know exactly what happened but something snapped and it drew the you know it drew the board through the blade faster than he was pushing and it brought his I guess it would be his right wrist underneath the blade you know like right where it should just cut off your hand and something also bound the blade at the same time so I remember a point where he had teeth marks across the top of his wrist but it didn't like sever anything it didn't you know cut his arm off or whatever but that moment I remember that specifically seeing his arm you know, scabbed up and stuff from this. I was like, I'm never going to use that tool. That's <laughs> like, you know, he was pretty careful, I think, with tools, but that's just one of those that uh, got away from him. Well, the, the radial arm saw and also the the uh, the radial arm saw is different because you can turn it on. You should be able to like flip a switch, and if it's not pulled back, it is ro- it is turning, and it yeah. could walk over the material like it could gradually start to find its way it could creep out if it doesn't have a spring holding it back and that's why they're so dangerous because they would walk on the wood so they're turning in the direction of holding the wood against the fence and pulling wanting to drive over the wood but you're controlling it with your elbow and your shoulder that if they if you lose control of that it'll walk up over the wood or if you're ripping you got to rip into the wood Sorry, my phone was ringing. You got to push into the blade, turning into the wood. If you push into it, turning in the other direction, it'll pull and walk on it. So th- those are just some of the dangerous things about a radial arm saw, which is why they're kind of out of fashion. Yeah. David, what was your first tool? I don't know, not purchase maybe, but like I have good memories of my first tool purchase. I I'll start off by saying. I didn't build things as a kid. I had Legos, but I had no connection with Legos. I never made anything. And then in high school, I took woodshop all four years. Even the last wood, I took the same woodshop class a junior and senior year just because I was allowed to. But I never really had a connection. That woodshop class was just so I didn't have to 
be in a study hall or take another class. I just did it to do it. And, but I had no connection with making things. It just didn't mean anything to me. And in my, I was more into like music and, and photography. And then something, sometime in my thirties, I was getting ready for an art show and I wanted to have some of my photography framed and the local framing company wanted like 125 bucks for each, each eight by 10 portrait. And I thought that's ridiculous. I could make some, I took wood chop in, in school. So I found a used Makita chop saw on Craigslist and bought that. And that was my first tool. And I didn't realize at the time that I could only do 90 and 45 cuts. I couldn't do the rabbits that I needed to make picture frames. And I was like, ah. And so then I, uh, I started watching, this is at the, this is the origins of, of YouTube. I started watching like Steve Ramsey and, and, um, Mark Spagnuolo. And I just got super hooked on woodworking. I was like, this looks so cool. I, I love, I just enjoyed watching those videos so I can't remember if my next purchase was the table saw or a band saw. I think it was the table saw. I found a used Grizzly for a hundred dollars and I paid the guy an extra 25 or $50 to deliver it to me. And this table saw was in this, I had it in like a 10 by 10 shed. It took up almost the entire shed, <laughs> but I had a place to put it. And then I got a, my first new tool was the Harbor Freight bandsaw. And so, and then it just, it just went from there. Like now I have this deep connection with making physical things. And that did not happen until my thirties. Um, but, and now I'm all, I, I would, I'm not obsessed with tools. I don't really care about tools. Like somebody was just mentioning like how, um, all my handheld tools are just thrown in a drawer and I don't respect them. And maybe Maybe that's true. I don't feel like I have to respect a, a, huh. a tool. Yeah, res that's an interesting. Yeah, because it was um. Well, uh, I think it was my like it wasn't. It's an expensive tool. It was like a Festool track saw or something, and it's just in a drawer with a bunch of other tools. I don't keep tools in their cases because it's too much of a barrier to get the tool out. So I get rid of all yeah. the cases. Brian Proust that takes all my Festool sustainers, so he's got a good collection of them. <laughs> Um, and they were, they were just like, this is a cool project, but I just don't like how you don't respect the tools. And I really have no, no connection. I'm not like I, Adam Sandler loves his tool. Not Adam Sandler, uh, Adam Savage, <laughs> <laughs> maybe Adam Sandler loves his tools, but Adam Savage loves his tools. He's got this deep connection with the tools. He wants them on display. He wants to make placeholders for each thing. And I really don't care about the tools. I care about the, the project and the, and the, and the process and the, and the physical thing. And I can't imagine my life without making things now. I would just feel so empty if I didn't have a way to make physical things. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I I wonder if, this is not our topic, but I wonder if that person meant that you value the tool versus respect it. Yeah. Because like, you know, if, if you're flippant with a thing 
and you don't care if it gets broken because you're like putting it or you know you're not storing it correctly or whatever like not valuing it but respecting it i think of that <clears throat> excuse me i think of that as a very different like you respect it's it's um you know the danger that it right it, it has or i don't know that seems like a weird sentence to me for someone else to say that about you and a thing that you own but yeah. whatever i mean I, I, like when you buy an expensive tool it should be able to take a beating these tools that i buy they're made to be taken on a job site thrown in a truck and so mm-hmm. i don't need to, i don't need to baby them and the the cases right. and the sustainers that they come with are just too big and i don't have the room so Everything goes in a drawer. Yeah, I res- and there's also a difference, I guess, between like a hobbyist mentality of I'm I'm spending this you know kind of precious cash on a tool that I'm going to use for my hobby and a thing I'm going to enjoy, and that's very different from somebody who works on a job site who's like, I got to go buy a thing that I'm going to just use until it is absolutely dead, and I'm going to beat it, and it's going to be in the sun, mm-hmm. and I'm going to sweat on mm-hmm. it, and I'm going to drop it in the water puddle, and you know <laughs> like whatever. It's just like a yeah different thing so um i was looking i was trying to find the first tool that i ever got and i grew up with you know my granddad and my dad both had wood shops uh i was in the shops but i didn't use the tools very much but they both had a radio alarm saw my dad still has his in his shop um and so i watched them use those tools but i never I don't even think I tried to, you know, I wasn't like interested in trying to use them. So I'm not putting it on them that they didn't let me use the tools. I just, I didn't try to. The, the first tool I remember actively really using and getting was I was dating a girl at the end of college or maybe right out of college or something. And uh, her parents for my birthday or something gave me a set of Black & Decker cordless tools. And it was the first... I think it was the first tool I ever got. And I remember there were three tools in it. There was a a drill, a jigsaw, and I don't remember what the other one was. I don't think it was a circular saw. But it was, you know, it was like a, a tool starter kit kind of thing. And so I was trying to find them, and I think I found them. And what's funny is that they're 6-volt, if it's the same one, they're 6-volt tools. You know, and now we're, we have like 60-volt tools. That's <laughs> crazy stuff. But... Uh, and this one, I believe, was one that the battery wasn't even detachable. It was just a bunch of cells that were built into the case. And so it had a plug on the back of it. came with a little wall wart, so you plugged it into the wall, plugged it into the back of the tool, and that's how you charge the tool. But I believe those were the first tools that I ever got. I was given, and it was more like, you live in an apartment now. You're dating our daughter, and so you need to be worth something. <laughs> and so here are some tools for you to be worth something, you know, or like take care of yourself or something like that. That was an overwhelming theme in that entire relationship between me and her parents. But anyway. Um, Look at me now. So, it, Yeah. <laughs> I got lots of tools. Um, so they gave me those things, and I remember the first thing I really did with them was I built a bed. I built – I just went – to Home Depot in somebody else's car because I didn't even have a car. And we got like half sheets of plywood or, you know, some like one by fours. Probably didn't even have to cut them. I probably just bought them and used, you know, whatever size they were (laughs) and put a mattress on top of it. But I remember I made a bed for myself or maybe it was my roommate. I don't remember. Um, 
And then I had a friend who had two rats as pets, and she wanted like an enclosure, like a tank for her rats. And I don't remember at all what it looked like or what was unique about it that wasn't just like a fish tank, but I made her a rat house <laughs> pen thing. I don't, I don't know what you call that. But I did those and a few other projects after that with um, just those three little six-volt tools, you know. And, and then probably didn't get any other tools for a pretty long time because that was, you know, I was starting a company right out of college, so I wasn't, like, building a lot of stuff on my own. But then through that time period of my life before I met my wife, those few years there, I thinking back, I did build a bunch of climbing walls and I built like a coffee table and I built other stuff. And so I must've bought other tools. I must've, you know, upgraded those a little bit here and there along the way. I just don't remember so long ago, but so black and Decker six volt was my first set of tools. Hmm. But I, I think the reason that this came up, if correct me if I'm wrong, Jimmy, is that after us talking about upgrading last week and uh, you know like using digital big stuff and not being afraid to use the big tools this was supposed to be kind of a reminder of where we came from right and how we shouldn't forget that stuff is that correct oh oh yeah 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 that's true yeah, rob did mention that and it's funny I, I have a hard time forgetting where i came from because i have so many tools that i've always had my whole life for instance mm -hmm. that bandsaw and then the lathe that I did used in some early videos was also part of that same purchase. So I had this old Blunt lathe. The brand name was Blunt, B-O-O-U-N-T. And it's still in my shop. I don't have it set up now because I got more lathes with more substantial with legs and stuff. My dad got that lathe with that buy, and it was always, it was always on, a, on a table. And so now I have it sitting on the floor, but I couldn't ever get rid of it for sentimental reasons, but I step over it all the time. And every once in a while, I think about setting it back up. In fact, the other day, we were re rearranging the shop and I said, we're getting rid of a lot of stuff. I found a chuck on the floor and it was a chuck like that would go in to hold the drill bit. And that chuck, I immediately was like, wow, I remember being a little kid picking that chuck up and not knowing what it was for or what the reason it needed to exist. And I knew it, I just said, oh, my dad always said that's part of the lathe. He never explained to me what it was, but I never saw him use it either. Hmm. You know, when you get a, a new a used tool and it comes with like a box of parts, you always just leave that box of parts with that tool. If in the un offhanded chance you need to reaccessorize it, you'll go through the box. So that chuck was away from the lathe. So I just had that memory this week. I started sitting on the ground like next to another thing, and I'm like, ah, that's the tapered chuck that goes into the lathe that dad got when I was a little kid. So those reminders are constantly around me. And I, I certainly do look back. You know, like sometimes I, I honestly get emotional when I look back at, you know, all the stuff I've accomplished. And I look around, you know, I, I walk out of my backyard every day and I look at the grass and the, the setting. You know, you guys have seen, you haven't been here, but you've seen the pictures of the, when you walk out my backyard. It's a really beautiful landscape. And, you know, now the new barn is poking up in the background. And, and uh, I just think I, it's amazing I've come this far. It still seems like it's just starting for me i still hmm. feel like i'm just getting started i don't know why i guess i'm just an overachiever i just feel like i haven't done enough but you know once in a while i get reminded yeah i always yeah. feel like i'm just getting started and that's such a it's it, it's a an amazingly good feeling that this is not getting old 
You know, it's it's interesting. Like I I get that feeling when I go to new things. Like there's still so many things I've never even tried to do. You know, new processes or using new tools or new whatever. And I get that like I think I get that charge, that getting started thing by going to try something new. And I've not even been remotely good at most of the things that I've done and I don't stick with them often enough or long enough to get good at them. But like especially good at them. It's also not a big like that's not a concern for me. Mm-hmm. It's just I want to try a thing and at least know that I can come back to it and learn it or whatever. But the thing that gives me that like I'm 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 excited about it and I'm really getting charged about a thing is going to pick up something new and trying a new thing. And so I think I got the feeling that this this topic was around like don't forget the the little tools don't forget the basic tools don't forget the you know which is true it's true but i i look at the stuff that at least i do and the things that i'm learning constantly and the tools that i'm adding as adding you know it's like i'm i'm building on top of a foundation i don't not use drills anymore i don't not use hand tools anymore but now i also get to use mm-hmm. a you know I went from a corded thing to a battery-powered thing. I still use both of those for different situations. And so I look at my own tool set, physical and like mental tool set, as I'm, I'm adding new capabilities to it all, you know, all the time. And I don't really like leave stuff behind and forget how to do the, the simple stuff. I'm just not only doing the simple stuff anymore. So I think I get a charge out of like adding to that library yeah. of stuff to use and things to use and, and experiences to draw on and stuff like that. So when I look at this, that's kind of how I look at it. For me, it's like if you were to ask me uh, or say to me, don't forget where you come from. I think the guilt of being pretty darn poor as a kid to now i can afford things as an there's there's a there's this weird guilt that that comes along with that of like i just remember like growing up and anybody who had any money was was an a-hole like that was just the mentality of, of the family <laughs> that was just like and that just sticks with you and now that we do okay. We do pretty good. Uh, I, I like to think I'm not one of those a-holes. Um, <laughs> so the, the, I'm reminded all the time with the, the guilt that I, that I have with that. But I, hmm. I, I don't continue to use basic tools and budget-friendly tools because I'm not only making videos for the audience, I'm making these videos for me and I'm growing as a person and as a maker. And a part of that growing is trying all those new things that you're talking about and learning those things and, and figuring out where my limits are and how to get past them. And, and so I'm making videos for me as a person to grow as a maker. Beautiful. Yeah, I I think there's like, you know, every every one of us is going to have a different intention. And we've talked about this so many times, like a different intention as to why we do the stuff, how we grow, how much we grow, what our intention is and trying new things and getting new tools. And, you know, you can't really apply. None of us could apply our own situation to other people in a one to one kind of way. But 
I do think it's really important to <clears throat> to keep the context, even in a case like you're saying, where your financial situation as a kid is not a thing that you want to perpetuate. It's not something you want to use as like a, a way to view other people or any of that type of stuff, but it is a really good point of reference for you and only you mm-hmm. to look at where you are now, how your life has changed, what your work has led you to. Uh, not to be prideful, I don't like. I don't think that's good, but it is a really good just point of reference as to how things are right now. Yeah, you know, to make you grateful, if nothing else. I mean, I think that's a. And when I look at <clears throat> my own situation, even in the short ten years or whatever I've been doing this, I can look at the one car garage that I started in, the basic tools that I had at that point. I don't want to go back to that. <laughs> But man, I'm grateful that I have what I have now in comparison to that. Absolutely. Like I and I think that's a good thing to be able to remember for sure. Yeah. yeah. Jimmy, you're muted. <clears throat> we were joking before I got started, before we got started and I was joking about how people are always like, "I miss the old days when you were in your basement shop." I said, "Well, I certainly <laughs> don't miss because of all the toilet water that would come in and <laughs> the rats and you know there would be like it was funny me and david always laugh we'd come down in the basement and be like it would be a super hot day and a rat will have died somewhere in the basement and you there's so much stuff in that we could never find it be thousands of flies in the basement for that week and like what are we gonna do there's nothing we can do we can't find until it it's like completely gone until it incinerates itself with flies and whatever and another day we'd come down there and i i would told this story often but there was a set of stairs, and when you came down, the, you turned the first light on, and you could see that the slab of concrete would go down about 10 inches into the pit where the bathroom was and the entrance to the shop, because the two buildings were connected. So the building that the workshop was in was lower than the building that you would enter in. You'd come down and flip on the light, and you could see the step, and it would just be darkness until you turned on the next light. Sometimes you'd come in and you flip on the light, and that slab of concrete that's supposed to end about 10 feet and then drop down 10 inches would just continually go straight through and that would just be full of water sewage water so that would be you know hundreds of gallons of sewer water that just filled up the basement overnight so like like i have so many things to do and i come in i flip the light on and i could see in the distance in the dark end of the hallway that the slab now is extended all the way to the other wall of the building I know we have a busy day ahead of us getting rid of water. Mm. But every every morning I'd wake up and flip that light on. I'd come downstairs and flip that light on and see like, okay, I could see the edge of the oh, step. Man. We're good. It's a good day. Wow. That, that got that got that crazy at the end. I can't even imagine the struggle ahead, of just being in the city, having finding a place to park, unloading a truck to nightmare. get materials down it, the steps. Could you even get a full sheet of plywood down there? I would have to send it down diagonally. So every piece of plywood I would send down would scrape on either side of the sidewalk entrance. So anytime I threw plywood down that step, I would have to cut off the half inch on each edge. because it's all gnarled up. Uh. (laughs) But then the other thing, so I can go through the middle of the building, but that would mean I would disrupt all the people that live there. So I would have to do that at 5 and 6 in the morning. So if I loaded my truck up with wood, I would circle the block until I could park directly in front of the building at five or six in the morning, which there was usually nobody there because it was parking restrictions. But then I'd have to have somebody with me because I wasn't allowed to walk away from my car till 10. So I'd pull up, park my car, hopefully somebody sitting in the driver's seat. And one by one, I'd be carrying the sheets of plywood through the main entrance to the building and down the stairs 
whole line, the whole time holding a 70-pound sheet of whatever, tollways up, because there was tall doorways, tollways, I'd have to go sideways through the two entrance doors and then spin it this way and then go down the steps. So I, that was that, when we had a big job and I had to get like, for instance, veneered walnut plywood or veneered MDF, I'd have to do that with those sheets of material, bring them down through the lobby when nobody was around at wee hours of the morning. As Bob was- The whole time being super quiet because oh, yeah. there's apartments on either side of the entrance. Yeah, fun times. As Bob was saying yeah, I earlier, like, I miss those. when you lived hours away from the grocery store, like that would just be your day <laughs> of going to get groceries. Yeah. Like if I lived in New York City and had a basement wood shop, that would just be my day, unloading the truck. And then I'm done. It, after it that. was. It was. I mean, there was like certain milestones. Like I'd wake up and be like, okay, I got to get material today. And I'd spend the whole day getting material and load it into the shop. And then once, like, the, the, the stress of just going to the Bronx and coming back with a truck full of material, it's a seven-mile ride, but it's a two-hour two hour yeah. time Ugh. one way. Just because you're driving mm. on the FDR Drive. and Crazy. I, so, yeah, I don't, miss, I don't miss that humble beginning. It was what it, <laughs> what it was. What it was was I mean, if you look at the timeline of my life quickly, I was in the toy business. And then the toy business started to falter. And then I thought I was going to be in the TV business. And the TV business started to falter. And then because of my last TV show at that time, I was doing interior stuff. And then an interior designer, a friend of mine, called me and said, can you do some interior design for me? And I was like, no, it's not really what I do. They're like, you just did it on TV. I'm like, I guess I can do it. And then I started doing that. And then I started, so I, by default, began to do proper interior woodwork just because my career kept changing in, in the city. I, I, I could have stayed in the toy business, but it became frustrating because I spent so much time developing products that never got sold. And then the TV, I thought, okay, I'm going to be a TV star, and that didn't work out. And blah, blah, blah. I started doing... So this basement shop became my li- my livelihood. And then, obviously, YouTube came along while I was in that basement shop. But I just... Living in the city, it's like, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. So just surviving all of a sudden i'm doing building interiors because it was kind of easy for me to do the woodwork and once i realized the hump for me the reason i didn't want to do that when it first came to me was because i didn't like dealing with clients i i was in the toy business i was completely i was completely insular from the public i would make a product make the prototype and the, you know by the time it came to the shelf i didn't i almost was completely not even responsible or detached uh, to completely detached from it but then when you physically make something and show it to somebody the day it's done and they go oh okay um is that the color it's going to be like uh, you know you get that gut punch that happened very infrequently but that was the risk of working directly for somebody and so that was the rub that was why i was scared to do that but i needed money and that's why i started doing that and now i'm completely immune to everything you could say anything you want to me like no problem you want to change the color let's change the color i don't care let's go i i have to imagine anything that you fall in love with like for me it's woodworking I, i i think it starts with a struggle whether that struggle is is money or space or having uh, just problems learning uh, a new skill. I think having that struggle at the beginning helps you appreciate that down the road. Like if I, if I was going to take a painting and then painting was really easy for me at the beginning, I don't know that I would appreciate it down the road. Hmm. 
That's a good point. Yeah. Well, I I hope that us and everybody listening can remember where they came from. But I also, my hope for us and everybody listening is that you have the opportunity and the motivation to grow past where you are. I think that's yeah, what we're supposed really to do. Yeah, it's really important. And, you know, that's funny. And I, we, 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 we always jokingly say that. Like, people like, I miss the old so-and-so or, you know, you've changed. And it's like, yeah, I've changed. I'm always going to change. We're all going to change. Yeah. You know, God help yeah. the people that don't want to change. Yeah. I miss when the Beatles so, were just hopefully. writing I Want to Hold Your Hand songs. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I miss when the Beatles were. Um, cool. Well, uh, let's thank our Patreon supporters. How about that? Sounds good. Because they help us continue to do this, and that makes them awesome. Big thanks to everybody over there that helps us out on patreon.com slash making it. They all get the after show because they help. No matter how much they help, they all help. And so they all get another podcast after this one of us talking about other stuff, secret stuff, extra stuff, um, and they get that through Patreon. So if you want to get that, you go to patreon.com slash making it, sign up at any level, and you've got it. But also, there's people that go above and beyond, and I call them out every week. And there's more people listed in the show notes that I don't call out every week. But i got to give a shout-out to Crabtree Creative, The Web Ranch Woodworks, Michael Menegin, Warren Works, Stu Morrison, The New Janky Workshop, Scott Orem, Sean Beckner, Odin Leather Goods, Rich at Lowen Designs, Chad's Custom Creations, Chad from Mancrafting, Works by Solo, Albers Woodworks, and Corey Ward. But also... Uh, one of our I Like to Make Stuff patrons joined up this week, Joey Make Stuff. I met Joey on one of our hangouts uh, last month, I guess is when that was. Very nice guy, very talented. Makes stuff, as is in the name. So thanks, Joey, for hopping on and supporting the show. We are grateful to everybody that helps us out over there. It means a lot. Do you guys have anything to recommend? Well, I got a couple things. So the the Good. one is I already gave you the link. Bob is uh, why did America abandon Route sixty six, route or route? I don't know which way to say that. And then the other one is this is a brand new channel, and uh, I think it was Chevy in my Discord who recommended this to me. If it was somebody else, I'm sorry. This is a brand new channel called Bricks and Disorder, and these two dudes. Uh, they find a couch, this, this couch that they love, and they try to redesign it, or they try to remake it, I should say, with no building skills, or very few building skills, and not having the tools. And it is an absolutely amazing journey. It's a fun video, and it's the first one, and it's got 525,000 views. It, it it popped off right wow. away, and these two gentlemen are going to be a hit. Uh, so, hop on this channel now, because it's, it's, it's just a really fun video. Mm -hmm. So, I have a video coming out this week with Matt Peach. I think we're going to try and release it this oh, nice. weekend. Matt Peach, if you guys don't know, Matt... Uh, is on Instagram and he's on YouTube and he's a very very clever inventor designer he's come up you guys have seen he's got a couple of real viral videos one of them is the viral posts the the dresser that looks like it was ripped in half yeah. and like a dresser yeah that's Matt Peach he comes up with some really clever playful things and he came up and we spent a, about a week together working on this I'll show you guys a picture of it 
because I didn't post on Instagram because I don't know if he wants me to reveal it yet. We have a meeting today to finalize how the video is going to play out. But you guys see that? Oh, it's, <laughs> yeah. It's a. Uh, it's like a. Uh, I guess I don't even know. We got to come up with a name. Call it. It's a fire table. Huh. It's a table with that with gas fire that comes out of the middle of it. But the mechanism that opens up the port, the gas port, is this interesting thing. Because of time and and uh, schedule, we we weren't able to to do some of the things we really wanted, which would have been like the Ooh. fire starting as soon as this trap door slides open. Uh, you guys can see here in this picture, we have this crazy diaphragm oh, wow. that slides open. It's like the like what are they, what is that called? It's like a, a an aperture. It's a yeah. camera aperture. We started with this as an idea. Matt was uh, inspired by the that aperture mechanism. We went online. We found a couple different ones. We paid for download, and that's the one we ended up using. We modified it a little bit, but not much, and we made a big metal wow. one. And Oh, there it is. On, I got the camera one. aperture tattooed on my arm. Yeah, it's great. So anyway, so check out Matt Peach, and he and I will have our collaboration video coming out this weekend, I believe. That's cool. Very cool. Um, well, mine is going to be selfless, self, selfless, not self, selfish promotion. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be promotion for us um, for the Making It Podcast YouTube channel. So we used to post episodes on YouTube oh, yeah. a long time ago, and then we stopped because it was just a hassle. It was like another thing to do. And uh, we have started posting them again. So we sh- we're starting with episode 400. This is episode 404. So we just decided to start at 400 we're putting episodes up there again and the reason i'm saying this is because i want some people like to listen to podcasts on youtube so now you can also we can't monetize that channel until we get enough listens so if you want us to be able to make money on that channel all you got to do is go there and listen to some episodes so i'm asking you that as a favor to us if you like the show just go put it on in the background you can leave the room if you want to but if you can get us some watch hours there so that we can monetize it that will help out the show as well be a, an easy way for you to help out and if you want to listen to it there i mean like awesome it's there for you now it's probably been so, six I'll put a, or seven years since we've actually had a sponsor like we choose to not do sponsorships on here yeah not not saying that's always going to be like that but because of Patreon and and now this, this YouTube channel, it allows us to do this and we benefit from it. Remember that yeah. time we turned down NBC? That was, that was uh, Yeah. <laughs> That's how big time we are. That is how big time we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so go check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes or if you just want to go to YouTube and search for Making a Podcast, you'll find the channel. Um, and good yeah. job on the visualizer. You guys got any? Oh, I had nothing no? to do with that. That's all okay. 4B. 4B uh, made a really nice little visualizer for the channel. So there's something moving on screen while you're watching, listening. It's, yeah, it's, it's well done. Cool. He did a good job. Cool. Well, you guys got anything else for this week? Right on. Okie dokie. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Go check it out on YouTube, and uh, we'll Thank see you, you next time.